The Road to Rediscovery is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let me ask you something. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? You know, for me growing up, feelings of anxiety, inadequacy, doubt, and even imposter syndrome got in the way uh, of me reaching my goals and reaching my full potential, right? So BetterHelp addresses these and more. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't have to ever sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and, get this, financial aid is even available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. They mean it. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Road to Rediscovery. That's Better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And there's a special offer for our Road to Rediscovery listeners. Get 10% off your first month when you register at BetterHelp.com slash Road to Rediscovery. We're all on this journey of life together. And it sure feels good to know professional help is within our reach with BetterHelp. Again, that's Better H-E-L-P. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Our lives are laid out on a road of bumps, turns, struggles, and more. How do we respond? How do we endure adversity for learning and growth? I'm Aubrey Johnson, and we'll explore these questions and more on The Road to Rediscovery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of The Road to Rediscovery. I'm your host, Aubrey Johnson. The Road to Rediscovery is about reflecting on life lessons to learn and grow from them, and of course, take it to the next level, pay it forward, and help others who are struggling through dark times. Now, as you know, on The Road to Rediscovery, we are very passionate about delivering quality content that is of value to you and your personal growth. If you like what you hear, please feel free to visit www.roadsrediscovery.com slash donate. That's road, the number two, rediscovery.com slash donate. We'll give you a shout out in a future episode. And as always, there is no obligation. We are truly, truly grateful for your listenership. While serving a 14-year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence from 1985 to 1999, my special guest developed an empowerment model called Radical Responsibility, which, of course, we'll unpack in this conversation. Today, he's an author and renowned growth mindset and meditation teacher, delivering his training programs worldwide, worldwide. He's also the founder of the Prison Mindfulness Institute and the National Prison Hospice Association. Oh, and he's also a Roshi, that is Zen master. It's an absolute pleasure to have him on the show can't wait for a great conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, let's please welcome Dr. Fleet Mall to the show. Dr. Mall, it's so great to have you here, sir. It's great to be here, Aubrey. Thank you for having me. And I love your introductory video there. I love it. The whole road to discovery. I love it. Oh, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. We're very pleased to have you here. So um, if you don't mind me asking, I'd love to start out for the benefit of the listeners. Um, can you can you can you paint the picture or take us to when uh, the beginning of this sentence that I that I just mentioned in the intro took place um, from a mindset standpoint? Like, um, how are you feeling? What were you going through? Did you feel there was any sense of hope? And then from there, what sparked your inspiration to um, to go um, to go in the direction towards discovering radical responsibility? Yeah, well. As we get into it, I'll, I'll probably need to give you a little more backstory, but but let's start right at the sentencing um, or the night before. So I had been uh, in a pretty much of a hellhole of a county jail uh, during for about six months going through trial mm -hmm. and uh, waiting trial, going through trial. And it was a 
It was in a little small town way south of, of the big city where my trial was happening. And uh, I was in a tank with that held, I think, eight prisoners in mm. two man cells and and uh, had no windows. It was a big steel box and, and it was summertime and it was blistering hot. It was really a terrible place and constant noise. And mm-hmm. it, it was it was really quite a place. And uh, at any rate, um, uh, I'd been there all that time. And then I went through trial and, and uh, I was convicted on all counts. And uh, and now I was awaiting sentencing. And uh, they actually brought me to the major city where my sentence happened in St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. and having a different jail. And the night before my sentencing, they had me in a in a suicide watch cell. Mm-hmm. I wasn't suicidal. I was certainly very concerned because I was being threatened with anywhere from uh, the, the, the one count that I've been convicted of carried a sentence of anywhere from 10 to life mm-hmm. with no parole. So whatever you got, that was it. Mm-hmm. And especially if you got a life sentence, the only way out would be a presidential pardon. And that's not going to happen unless you're really wealthy or connected, obviously. So, um, you know, I, I was uh, I was concerned, to say the very least. Uh, you know, I kind of felt like my life was over. I was 35 at the time. I, I knew I was going to do a lot of time one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I couldn't sleep at all. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was in this tiny little cell with all concrete and steel and and somewhere you know, not long before dawn, I just, I just had this need to to look out. And there was a little window up high. So I stood up on this kind of stainless steel toilet sink thing and was able to peer up and just look out this small window and see the stars in the night sky. Mm -hmm. And uh, that gave me some relief. And, and then I climbed back down and, and as I sat down in the bunk in that cell, just this kind of wave came over me and I just felt this really solid commitment uh, arise in me that I would not give up. No matter what happened the next day, I would not give up. I wouldn't give up on myself. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't give up on my son who was nine years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't give up on life. And, and I was very grateful for for that experience. I then, you know, later that day, I, I got sentenced and uh, I was sentenced to 30 years with no parole. And I'd been hoping for maybe 15, 10, 15, 20. And when that, when the judge said 30 and, you know, and hammered the gavel down. My knees buckled a bit. My lawyer had to hold me up. And, and uh, you know, I pretty much thought my life as I'd known it was over with. Yeah, yeah. My goodness, man. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't fathom to even imagine um, what that feeling um, is like. I mean, it, 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 it's overwhelming, you know. And uh, man, that's that's tremendous, Doctor Mall. Um, it's tremendous. So, you were talking about looking at that 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 glimmer of uh, of of the night sky, you know, through through the small opening, and and uh, having that sense of hope. Um, was that was that temporarily diminished after the judge laid the gavel down, uh, or did you still have that flame, even though your knees buckled? because of the impact of that, that moment in time, you still have that flame for um, not giving up on yourself, not giving up on your son. Um, how did yeah, you search forward with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that certainty was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I went through a very intense emotional experience. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, in the holding tank courthouse, I'd seen, uh, you know, other men coming back, uh, it was, well, it was a male holding tank. They probably held women prisoners in a different tank anyway. So mm-hmm. was, I saw men coming back from sentencing, mm-hmm. breaking down into, and I saw U.S. Marshals making fun of them. Oh, and, wow. you know, I just had said, my, I'm not going to give them that opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, I was absolutely devastating uh, knowing what I'd done to my son, mm-hmm. that my son was going to grow up without a dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I just shoved the tears down, you know, and I just, yeah. I wasn't going to give them that satisfaction. And I went back into the into the tank um, and eventually was transferred down to the back to that hellhole of a small town county jail uh, that night. And uh, I remember being late at night up in my bunk, not being able to sleep again. I didn't sleep much during that whole seven months, to tell you the truth. It was was constant bedlam and noise 24 hours a day in that county jail. Wow. And uh, but I was up late at night and just incredibly disturbed and. Mm-hmm. And I, and I really wanted to let the tears come, 
Mm-hmm. And they just wouldn't come. I had kind of shoved them down so hard they just wouldn't come. And a jail's really no place to cry anyway. But no, it's I, not. I really wanted access, but I, I just couldn't access it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really then went through a real dark night of the soul around what I'd done to my son primarily. I was absolutely devastated. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd had so many internal justifications justifying what I've been involved in and doing all those years. And, and meanwhile, thinking that I love my son and, and, you know, and that I'm a good dad and, you know, and I just had to face the fact that I've been making so many selfish decisions for so long and putting my son's life at risk and his mother's life at risk. And, yes. and I had to face that and face the consequences of it, that now my son was essentially going to grow up without a dad. The next morning in the paper, it said I would be 65 before I have any chance of, of release. And, uh, I learned later, once I got to the federal prison, uh, it really took a month or two, and I kind of got some, figured out how the whole sentencing thing worked. And fortunately, I was sentenced under what they call the old law in the federal system prior to 1987. And then uh, at that time, even they did have parole then, but my I was convicted of a no parole sentence. So if I if it had been parolable, I would have gone to the parole board after serving one third. Wouldn't wouldn't didn't mean I would necessarily get paroled, but I'd right. have the opportunity. Right. Um, but I had a no parole sentence, but you did receive a lot of good time by staying out of trouble. So on a on a sentence longer than 10 years, you got 10 years, 10 days a month, statutory good time if you stayed out of trouble. So you could subtract that off the back end of your sentence, mm. and that was your statutory release date. And then if you just kept a job while you were there, you didn't have to do a good job. If you just kept a job in prison, you got another five days a month that you accrued as you went along. So once I figured all that out, I figured on that 30-year sentence, if I stayed out of trouble and kept a job, I would serve 18 and a half. Now, that still felt like forever at that time. Sure. Uh, and uh, and then later, it took uh, my appeal. You know, I appealed my conviction, obviously, as everybody does. But And I actually would have just, I wouldn't have gone to trial if they hadn't, uh, charged me with this one count of what's called continuous criminal enterprise, the so-called drug pin, drug kingpin statute, which I didn't feel I was guilty of. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they had just charged me with the other counts, I would have just pled guilty and put myself at the mercy of the court. Mm-hmm. But I, I went to court. I went to trial because of that reason. And uh, at any rate, on appeal, they they did drop one count, not that count, but they dropped another count, which reduced my aggregate sentence from 20 from 30 down to 25. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I knew I would serve 14 and a half if I stayed out of trouble. Of course, I had no guarantee of staying out of trouble because trouble was around every corner in prison. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. at any rate, I did end up serving uh, 14 and a half. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, one thing that. I guess it's a theme that kind of kind of resonated with me as you were explaining all of this, Dr. Maul, is um, it's it's what I call one of the four cornerstones to personal growth um, uh, and it's self-awareness. Um, I have these four cornerstones, self-awareness, gratitude, humility and service to others. Um, but self-awareness seems to have played a tremendous role in um well, in your life overall, but specifically during this time, you were saying that you, you, uh, you were thinking about what you did to your son. You were thinking about what you know, what you did to your family. What this means, um, you know, for you, and uh, you know, live, um, you know, existing in this in this institution. You know, um, what uh, can, can you break down for us? Uh, what, how important self awareness was to you at that time? And um, did self-awareness play a role in your um, in your discovery of mindfulness and meditation? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, at that point, I mean, I realized I had completely torched my life. I'd burned it to the ground, you know, the life I'd known. And, and mm-hmm. I'd let down my family and my my teachers and my community. And But most of all, what I'd done to my son. And uh, and to myself as well. And, uh, you know, self-awareness was huge. And but now I need to cycle back and give you a little of the backstory, which is kind of unusual in my case. Mm -hmm. So before I went to prison, I'd been deeply involved in a path of self-awareness for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got interested in Buddhism and Buddhist meditation back in the uh, late 60s, even more so in the mid 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, by 19, 
1976, 77, I had really, even before 75, really, I'd really embraced uh, the path and yeah. got more and more deeply involved in it. And which begs the question, how the heck did I end up in prison? Suffice <laughs> it to say, you know, I was pretty thick-handed and I was successful in compartmentalizing my life. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was very involved in this Buddhist path. I'd gone back to graduate school, got a, a master's degree, did a very intensive three-year clinical training program mm -hmm. in Buddhist and Western psychology, but it was mm -hmm. a program designed to work with people uh, with severe mental illness. And it was a very powerful program. And I learned a lot, a lot of what I learned still serves me today. And I had a lot to a lot of retreats, uh, traveled a lot with my meditation teacher, who was a renowned Tibetan meditation master. Mm -hmm. I received a lot of training. I, I was trained not only as a meditation practitioner, but as a teacher, uh, or at least an instructor. And and so I had all that background when I came to prison. But, you know, I had, I had all these justifications because, you know, I, I was a very angry young man, uh, you know, went into the counterculture head on, had all this, you know, big hole in my gut from early alcoholic family stuff and was trying to fill it with every experience you could imagine. And, mm -hmm. you know, and so and then left the country as an expat because I was just angry and alienated about everything. And then, mm -hmm. you know, justified falling into small scale uh, drug smuggling as a way to live outside the system and, you know, mm -hmm. the system and the world's hypocritical. And I felt, you know, I had all these internal justifications. Mm -hmm. And as I got more involved in that Buddhist meditation path, mm -hmm. I realized it was a complete cognitive, you know, not cognitive dissonance, it's just, you know, black and white, but I self-medicated around that and mm -hmm. I was in denial around it. And mm -hmm. I knew I had to get out of that world, but before I could get out and untangle myself, I earned my way into that, uh, into that federal prison sentence. So when I did get there and, you know, the the devastation uh, that hit me around what I'd done to my son and myself and so forth, you know, that completely woke me up. And I became radically dedicated to get all the negativity out of my life and take all the good that I've been given and that I've received and really do something with it. And I became really passionately determined. I didn't know whether I was going to survive prison. I had no certainty that I would survive the time in prison. But I wanted to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or his, even his dad died in prison. And I became passionately dedicated to that. And I also knew that although in terms of the Buddhist meditation path, I'd mostly been interested in the mind stuff, the awareness stuff, right? And I'd been giving short shrift to the ethical foundation of that path. I'd really been ignoring that. And so I decided that my life in prison was going to be completely grounded in the ethical principles of the Buddhist path. And also, I realized once I got into that really intense, crazy environment of the federal prison, uh, which I can talk about in a moment, it was a very unique federal prison. Um, uh, I realized that anything I'd be able to do of value there would come out of my practice. It wasn't going to kind of come out of talk or thought. It was going to come out of, you know, walking the talk and really practicing. So, you know, I, I, I was practicing like my hair was on fire. I was just totally dedicated. I, I really lived for those 14 years, the life of a very dedicated kind of prison monk, but one who was also very engaged in that community trying to show up and add value. That's tremendous. I mean, uh, and that, that had to have been um, a thin line to walk, right? Uh, a balancing act basically uh, to, 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 to kind of mentally relax your brain, your mind, um, and, and, and have some degree of peace uh, by using the practices of, of, of what you've uh, learned and studied, you know, in Buddhism and, uh, and, and like you said, being a prison monk um, for, for, your, for your own inner sanity, right? But at the same time, being connected with the community and having or being the example for others uh, in, in terms of, you know, just model, inmate, um, um, good behavior, uh, no provocation, uh, th those sorts of things. Um, and, 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 and you touched on radical responsibility and it seems like this is where the birth of radical responsibility started. Um, as far, as far as that model is, is that, is that around the time frame when? Yeah, ab absolutely. And, okay. and you're right. It was a, it was a thin line to walk because, uh, you know, 
you know, the 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 prison officials, they just expect you to act like a convict and, you know, a right. thug and, you know, and they're yeah. actually even more comfortable with you if you're kind of just a regular convict and getting in trouble because they just can regard you as, you know. Yeah. And and if you want to get along with your your fellow prisoners and fit in, then you use, you know, the MF word, every other word and every <laughs> sentence, and, you know, yeah. and, and and you act like a convict and act like, you know, and you'll get along. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't doing any of that. I was real clear my my fellow prisoners they were my community and you know the prison of the the guard you know the correctional that's that's them i wasn't demonizing anybody but i was real clear where my community was and what side of the fence i was walking on right but at the same time i wasn't you know people didn't quite know what to make of me because i wasn't you know going along with the program exactly Mm -hmm. but what i saw when i got there i mean first of all this is a, a maximum security federal prison hospital okay and it's where they bring all the patients they bring there. There were 600 medical patients, 400 psychiatric patients, and about 300 what they call general population or work cadre inmates like myself who were there just to help run the place, to work in carpentry, welding, housekeeping, the kitchen, food service. Yeah. I, I got a job in the prison school because I had an education. So mm-hmm. somebody, when I got there, they said, go get a job somewhere. They're going to put you in the kitchen. So they said, you, you got to go, go to the school. So I went to the school and they gave me a job as a, what they call being a, a tutor. Mm-hmm. And so that was my day job for 14 years, teaching school, helping men learn to read, helping men get their GED, uh, teaching English, uh, ESL, mm-hmm. Uh, and so forth, uh, tutoring people on college classes. That was my day job for 14 years, very rewarding part of my life and a big learning experience as well. Oh yeah. Um, but when I got there, uh, when I remember the first day I got there, I mean, first of all, it was a big relief to get to this big place. There were like 10 buildings all connected by these underground tunnels. Mm-hmm. You could walk around. There were prison yards to get out there. There was a rec room. And compared to this, you know, little hellhole of a county jail I've been in, it was a big relief. But I'm looking around and I'm seeing men being guided around who are blind, men being wheeled around, completely mm-hmm. emaciated from AIDS and cancer, mm-hmm. uh, men who are paraplegics, quadriplegics. I mean, it was like something out of a Fellini movie. Wow. And, uh, you know, men doing the two, you know, Thorazine or Halidol two-step coming out of the psych ward. You know, it was yeah. like, and, but what I really recognized was not so much the bizarreness of it, but the suffering and and fortunately for me because when i got there as you can imagine i was pretty wrapped up in the drama of my own situation i just got this 30-year no parole sentence i you know i was 35 and they said i'd be 65 before i had any chance of release so i was pretty self-absorbed in the Mm -hmm. drama of my own situation but Mm -hmm. when i when i saw all this suffering it completely woke me up and the influence of my spiritual teacher who was someone who as far as i could tell just 24 7 served humanity Mm -hmm. you know and and a good background i had for my family although my family had you know alcohol problems and so forth that created a lot of problems for me at the same time they were basically good people with good values so you know that kicked in and i realized okay i just got to show up here and find a way to serve right right that kind of woke me up and then but the other thing that i saw was that i was in a world of tremendous negativity tremendous negativity like you'd Mm -hmm. meet another prisoner and the kind of ritual was you know you go for a walk after lunch or dinner, it's on out on the track. There was in the main yard, there was a big track that went around a softball field. And then it was a basketball court over here. And you got walked the track and, you know, and, you know, either one of you would start first and share your victim story. And then the other would share the victim story, you know, because everybody, all, everybody in prison has a victim story. They all feel like they've been victimized. Right. Yeah. And, and in many cases they have, you know, a lot of, most mm-hmm. of the people that end up in the criminal justice system have been terribly victimized in their childhood. Most of them. But at any rate, their victim stories are not about that. Usually it's about their fall partner screwed them over or their lawyer screwed them over. Mm -hmm. You know, the the judge did this, you know, and so they tell their story, you tell their stories. I did that a few times and I didn't want to hear my, you know, after one or two, I didn't want to hear my story again at all. I didn't really want to hear their stories, which wasn't very compassionate of me, but I just didn't want to live there. And fortunately, I had enough background and training that I knew that this was a really negative environment with people walking around with big victim stories and a lot of anger and bitterness. And that's normal. I, I can appreciate it because when you get arrested from the minute of your arrest, it's a shaming process and you're just being buried and demonized under a mountain of guilt and shame. Yes. And so you instinctually go, you know, just to protect yourself, to survive kind of mentally, psychically, psychically, emotionally, you, you armor up with, with one with your victim story, but also with anger and bitterness and so forth. And so it was an incredibly negative environment. And and I knew I didn't want to walk out of prison that way. If I ever if I was lucky enough to survive, I didn't want to come out angry and bitter with a big victim story. But no. I didn't even want to live that way while I was there. 
right? So I yeah. knew that I had to very proactively do something or I would end up that way because that's the world I was in. So I realized that I had to embrace 100%, even 200% ownership for having got myself into that situation and for what I was going to do with it and whether I'd ever have any chance of doing something positive with my life in there or beyond prison if I would survive and get out someday. I realized I had to take absolute responsibility for that. And I had lots of people. I mean, when, when you get prosecuted by the federal government on, on you know, drug trafficking, they, they don't play by the rules. They, they play hardball. They don't care. They, they lie, cheat, steal, break all the laws. You know, they play hardball and they make no bones about it. And, you know, I think I was over prosecuted and all kinds. Of, and plus, you know, I, I became the designated kingpin because the way they do, you know, these, uh, you know, drug trials you know, anybody that's involved in any kind of sale of drugs, you're connected to a whole bunch of people one way or the other, right? And so they they make deals with everybody and the person that won't cooperate, you become the kingpin and everybody else cooperates against you and testifies against you. And I refused to testify, not because I was trying to be a stand-up guy, but my Buddhist values just didn't line up with, you know, I, I had always never intended to do that. And my main partner didn't do it either. Uh, my main associate who had been my, my buddy, my partner in those activities, so we both ended up doing a lot of time. We did a lot of people's time. We probably did 30 or 40 people's time. Right. Oh, and, sure. And, and uh, but, you know, I, I chose not to focus on that. I said, you know, I just realized focusing on any of that's going to be a complete waste of time. In fact, I had some very seemingly close friends. I would call them more like associates today who really stuck the knife deeply in my back. And I decided I, I don't want to I, I want to dissolve any enmity I feel towards them as soon as I possibly can. I certainly don't want to walk out of prison with any of it. And we have a practice in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition called exchanging self for other on the medium of the breath. It's called Tan Lin. And I actively did that with those folks. Uh, and I got to the place where I, I didn't hold any enmity or grudges or anything resentment toward anyone. And, and I don't today. In fact, I'm just grateful for everything I've ever received from anybody. I'm even... I really have deep regrets about the impact of what I did and that serving that time I had on my family and my son and so forth. But other than that, I'm, I'm really grateful for everything I received and the opportunity I had to transform myself. So, but I just saw this was, it, I wasn't being heroic. I just saw this was the only way out. I had to embrace this total ownership for the choices I'd made, for uh, what I got myself into, and the choices I was going to make today and where that was going to lead me. And that's really where the radical responsibility uh, approach was born for me. Amazing. Amazing. A tremendous, absolute, enormous amount of, um, of, of self-awareness as well as uh, self-accountability um, that, that, that you've practiced, uh, um, during, during this time, during this process. And, and, you know, you're right, Dr. Maul. I mean, um, these victim stories, you know, to me, it seems like a vicious cycle, right? Um, when, when the inmates talk about their victim stories and, 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 and not having the self-awareness to hear yourself when you tell every inmate that you run into in the institution, your victim story. And, and then, you know, I, I think incrementally, as you tell the victim story, your bitterness grows more and more and more and more. And, 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 and it's a vicious cycle because over time, you kind of let that define who you are when, you know, when, when, when there's so much more potential, um, if it all, if self-awareness, you know, ever, uh, was around or, or, or possible. Yeah. Um, I, I want to thank you for sharing and being quite transparent with, uh, with, uh, what you were going through. You painted a very vivid picture of, of, of your, your time in prison, how you got the job in, in, in the school, which is, which is far better than the kitchen, I would imagine. And, uh, and, and, and then, you know, the, the mood and mindset of, of your, of your fellow, your fellow inmates, um, when, when did you decide to um, to hold these training classes? Um, was this something that uh, was part of what you did before sentencing, or maybe was it after you were released? Um, or did you practice and help others um, within the system? Yeah, uh, I, I think I've been a natural um, teacher in many ways. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's kind of natural instinct to share what I learned, to learn something and then share it. 
Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why, but I think that's just kind of part of who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the prison, of course, I worked as a school teacher for 14 years and I learned a lot because I was the, the, the guys I was teaching were my fellow prisoners. And, you know, we lived up in dorms. And even if we had a cell, I finally, it took me two and a half years to get into a single cell, one of the few single cells on the floor. You know, I lived on a floor that was originally a medical floor designed for 50 patients. And we had anywhere from 175 to 190 men living on that floor normally. Oh no air conditioning in the summer. So it oh. was just a pressure cooker for all kinds of violence and stuff. Sure. And and we had no locks on any of the doors. So, you know, the littlest guy on the, on the, on the floor in the middle of the night when you're sleeping can wrap a lock in a sock and you know you're dead right so yeah uh you know you got to deal with people and learn to work with people and and you know in the school uh you know if you if if you in any way try to express any sense of authority in relation to another prisoner it's like what are you the police you know you know I mean, yeah. right so and a lot of my fellow uh tutors the inmate tutors as they were called we actually did all the teaching there were there were staff instructors in there, but they mainly opened and closed the doors, right? It was, yeah. we did, we did the teaching, yeah. but most of the tutors, they'd go over and sit in a desk in the corner and they tell the guy, Hey, you want some help? I'm over to help you, but mm -hmm. I'm not going to bother you. You're cool. I'm cool. You know? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I just didn't want to do that. You know, this was my life and I wanted to help people. And, and, you know, I really wanted to teach. And I did a lot of classroom teaching and, and to get up in front of a classroom and teach and, and with, you know, teach one-on-one -on -one and, and, and classroom style teaching as well you got to exercise a certain amount of classroom control. Well, that's, that's just complete opposite of what you can do in that environment. So I, you know, I had to figure out how to get in relationship with people enough that they would let me encourage them and push them a little bit to learn. And for many of these guys, their memories of school was a nightmare mm -hmm. and they were being forced to go to school because if they didn't have a GED, they had to go to school. And if they refused, they went to the hole. And a lot of mm -hmm. times they would refuse and go to ad seg or the hole, get locked up for a week or two weeks. Then they have to come back and go back to school anyway. Now they're more pissed off, more angry, right? And if they right. need to go back, you know, some go back for three or four times, you know. Yeah. yeah. And here they are. I'm sitting. They're staring at me. I'm staring at them, right? And they're like, mm -hmm. you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who, who you are, right? You know. Right. Yeah. And, no. And I had to learn. You know, I I screwed up a couple of times, gotten in some really, you know, potentially dangerous situations once or time. But I'm a quick learner, and I really learned that I had to really patiently get in a relationship with each guy. And get mm -hmm. to the point where through humor and relationship, I could, you know, you know, and I ended up helping a lot of people learn to read or get their GED and a lot of appreciation. And and uh, it also connected me across because prison is a very racially divided environment. You yes. know, when you went up in the, what they call the chow hall, the dining hall, there were two sides. There was a like a salad bar line down the middle. There were two lines. You could either ran inside and you go through either two of cafeteria lines, right? Same, they had the same food, you go through this side, then you come back down the middle, uh, the salad bar, and as divided, all the white prisoners sat on one side, all the black prisoners sat on the other, and the Latinos would sometimes sit on one, either side, right? Okay. And the yeah. Asians mostly sat, I think, on the white side. There weren't that many Asians, sometimes some. And at any rate, I was one of the few prisoners that ever sat over on the other side with the black prisoners. I didn't do it all the time, but I did it periodically. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of friends. And because I taught school, you know, I was uh, working with a lot of a lot of black guys, a lot of Latinos. And I was helping a lot of Latinos from Mexico learn English. And also I, I played basketball, which was unusual there. And, and you know, so I was one of the few white guys playing basketball. So I, <laughs> I was more connected with the different communities uh, than almost anybody there especially for a white guy, but I still had to be careful, know where I was and who I was talking to, because there was times when it's, hey, yeah, we know, I know you were connecting. There are other times when you're kind of around that it's all, you know, don't yeah. put me on front street. I don't know you, you know? So yeah, you, had, you know, you had to work with those kind of sensitivities all the time. But anyway, I, I learned a lot teaching school. And then uh, I also got very involved in 12-step work because I knew I had issues around alcohol and drugs. And so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got very involved in the 12-step work and became a leader in that and did that for 14 years. And I was always getting other guys into the leadership position, going into the background. But most guys were only there for a year, year and a half. Nobody wanted to stay at that place because of the federal hospital. They wanted to get transferred, get closer to home. So, you know, I cycled through a lot of guys. But I was, you know, the mainstay in the background of that group for 14 years. And so, you know, a lot of leadership there. And then I, I helped start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world, as far as we know. Another inmate and myself uh, got inspired to do something about the incredibly horrible, really criminally negligent conditions that men were dying in there. And this was the height of the AIDS epidemic. And the oh my gosh, the patients 
here were brought from all the federal penitentiaries. It was yeah. a max. There was, there's other federal prison hospitals, but this is the maximum security one. So mm -hmm. the patients, whether they were psychiatric or medical, were from like Lewisburg and Lompoc and Atlanta, from all the federal penitentiaries. They're really scary places, right? Mm -hmm. And and so, uh, uh, and they were there dying in horrible conditions. So another inmate and myself worked for a long time to get the staff to finally go for it. And we got a hospice program started and got outside people to come in and train us to be hospice volunteers. That was a huge part of my life for the last 11 years of my time where I wow. spent most of my meal breaks, a lot of my evening time, weekend time up in the hospital caring for guys who were dying. And we'd be assigned to particular patients. So you'd stick with one guy, uh, you know, through to his death. A, a few guys got out, but most of them died there. And, uh, you know, that was incredibly transformative for a number of reasons. One, you're faced with your own mortality because a lot of my patients were younger than I was. Yeah. Uh, some were older, some were my age. And, but I know there, but for the grace of whatever you believe in, go you, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, and also, you know, I saw men in the general population there get sick and end up in the hospital and die there. In fact, we had two hospice volunteers who were healthy hospice volunteers in the general population, just like myself, get sick, become hospice patients and die there. Right. Oh, One of them was a close friend of mine and the other became my patient. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you're really confronted with your own mortality. And then the other part of it is that in doing that kind of service work, you're putting your own needs aside and yes. putting someone else's needs in front of your own in a really yes. powerful way. Yes. And, and that is one of the most transformative things you can ever be involved in to actually, you know, get, have, you know, be compelled enough to really focus on someone else's need, not as expensive your own, but just, you know, this is their time. So leave me outside the door. I'm here to really support and serve this person. And making that shift is, you know, one of the most transformative things any of us can do, right? To help get us out of that kind of egocentric way. Most of us start out and certainly the way I'd been. So, you know, I was doing all that and I, and I, I, I really uh, helped design the education program, the training program. And I was running the training program for the hospice program. And, and so I was teaching there. I was, you know, I was a leader in the 12 step work. I was teaching in school. I had, I started a meditation group that ran twice a week. So I was teaching meditation. So I was teaching and training the whole time I was in prison. And mm -hmm. I learned a lot. And I also studied, did a lot of research. I, I almost finished my PhD while I was in prison. So I was really training myself. You know, I knew when I got out, once I once my sentence was reduced from 18 and a half to 14 and a half on appeal, I knew that if I managed to stay out of trouble, uh, I'd be just short of my 50th birthday when I got out. Right. And it's pretty tough to start a life when you're 50, especially when you got a record, uh, a record as a serious, you know, offender. And also, right. you know, the IRS had a $300,000 judgment against me related to, you know, charge me taxes on, on the drug smuggling I'd done. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I knew, get, you know, I was going to be in a tough spot when I got out and I knew I had to really focus on training myself. And, and so I did, I, I tried to add as much value as I could while I was there, but I was really training myself for any possible future. And, and that really paid off. So I think when I came out, I was a pretty well-trained teacher. And, and I also ended up uh, becoming a business management consultant coming out of prison, and which is, seems smoke and mirrors. But in some ways, learning how to get things done in an environment where you're completely powerless, a totalitarian, totalitarian environment where, you know, the staff, they have all the power. And if you resist it, you know, and you're in four point restraints on a concrete bunk being hosed down at night. So, you know, how do you get anything done in that environment? So I really had to learn how to be skillful. And, and so I think that 14 years really was the training that's allowed me to do everything I've been doing for the last 23, 24 years around the world. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and you know, I was <laughs> I was going to ask you uh, and, 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 and have you bring us to the time when you were released, when you got out and, and, and putting us in, in that seat, you know, of what you were feeling, what you were thinking and going through. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some excitement and there's some, you know, like, Hey, I am free now. But at the same time, you had a very, sounds like you had a very realistic view of knowing that, you know, I'm going to have some challenges against me in the real world, starting life outside at 50, um, along with, uh, you know, having a record of, of this size and uh, and uh, feeling like cards were stacked against you, but um, you know it's amazing how uh, the good practices 
that you have um, that you have demonstrated in that environment has paid dividends outside that environment. Would 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 that be accurate in saying? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I want to say, I mean, I remember I was interviewed several times uh, while I was in prison. I was interviewed on NPR one time uh, mm. around the hospice work and other things. I'd been publishing some things and publishing yes. some research and so forth and getting a little notoriety, which the prison didn't really appreciate very much, actually. <laughs> but um, uh, at any rate, I remember being asked, you know, one time, you know, it seems like this this prison situation has been pretty good for you. You know, it's it's actually really served served you in terms of been very transformative for you. And I said, absolutely. But I want to make this really clear. For most prisoners, it's really destructive. Most people come out worse than they went in. I was really fortunate that I came in with a lot of training already. And, and this woke me up and I was able to creatively use this time and this situation but I did, I did that myself, not to pat myself on the back, but this place is not set up to heal people, right? right? And, right. and it doesn't. And most people come out much worse than they went in. Mm. Uh, so uh, not everybody, but uh, the majority, really. Yeah. And uh, it's, a very de- it's a very incredibly inhumane, disempowering, uh, institutionalizing, trains you to be helpless, trains you to be a victim. Yeah. Uh, it... Um, you know, on a, on a good day, you maybe only have a half dozen really demeaning encounters with either the correctional officers or your fellow prisoners. I mean, just demeaning where you feel your your humanity is just, you know, really under assault, you know, just, you oh, know, yeah. those mm-hmm. dehumanizing experiences on a good day. Maybe you only have six. So it's a really oh negative environment. And it was only because of my internal practices. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was meditating two, two, three hours a day and long run weekends and doing all these internal yoga practices from my right. tradition. And so I got to the place where I was living in a very positive state, right. even in this crazy world. But that's not most prisoners didn't have access to that. Right. Yeah. So uh, when I did get out, you know, um, you know, one of the, the things I hoped for was that I would get out and my parents would be able to see me out of prison and okay, right? And they'd be, finally have that relief and that joy. Well, my father ended up dying five months before I got out. And mm-hmm. uh, be, as he was getting near death, my family was telling me you should come, you know, you should come home. And But they were only going to let me go uh, with uh, four guards and, uh, you know, belly chain handcuff and leg irons right yeah yeah i said i'm just not going to my family i brought them enough shame enough i'm not going to my family that way i'm just not doing it yeah and i remember uh uh you know when you were up in the dining hall sometimes the executive staff sat stood up against the back wall and if you wanted to go up and ask the warden something you could and uh so warden called me over and he said you gotta go you gotta go see your dad you know and i said i ain't going i ain't going like that warden i just ain't doing it Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the next day, um, my dad died and, uh, he said, you gotta, you gotta go home for the funerals. You gotta go home. And, uh, and I said, I ain't going like that word. I just ain't doing it. And, uh, and then, uh, the next, so that, that was a dinner that next morning, the correctional officer came and got me at like six 30 in the morning, woke me up and said, you're going, you're going. And, uh, mm. uh, uh, I said, what do you mean? I'm going, I said, they're, they're going to give you a furlough. And so mm. they gave me a 72 hour furlough and they said, you got 72 hours. Don't be late. And they gave me, so, you know, a cheap suit to wear and, and yep. uh, 50 bucks out of my commissary account. And they, they had yep. an airplane ticket waiting for me at the airport and they called a taxi and they let me out the door. And there I am standing. I'll never forget this day. My father's just died. I'm flooded with grief. It's yeah. a beautiful blue sky day. There are these flagpoles in front of the prison. The, the flags are beating in the wind. And yeah. And, you know, I hadn't been out, I hadn't been out of that prison in, you know, 13 and a half years or whatever. And I was just, I I never felt that alive in my life. And at the same time, just flooded with grief and pain. And it was just an incredible experience. And then, then the taxi arrives and it was this kind of grandmotherly woman who was the the taxi. And I, I mistakenly being friendly, got in the front seat with her. 
And it felt like she was driving 90 miles an hour at the airport. But I hadn't been in a car in, in 13 and a half years, right? Right. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I get to the airport and I go into the bathroom and they got these things where you put your hands underneath it and the water comes out. I, whoa, what's that? You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had TV. We kind of had a sense of the world. But some of those details, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. And anyway, I, I did go home and, and was there for my, my father's funeral and with my Good. family, with my mom. And I stuck by her through the whole thing, got Good. back and. And uh, and then I was released five months later. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, that was, you know, I was surprised that, that kind of caught me off guard because, you know, I've been hearing for years uh, from guys that went out and they came back and they talked about how they got screwed over in the halfway house, screwed them over. And, you know, they always had a big victim story. And I used to always kind of think, ah, I wonder what, you know, what did you really do? You know what? You know, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I was I was kind of a little skeptical. Sure. And uh, and but I got to the halfway house myself. Now I, my, uh, my, my, a former girlfriend who'd been my best friend, who become my best friend while I was in time, she moved on, I moved on, but she was a close friend. She and my son picked me up at the airport in Denver and drove me to Boulder, Colorado, where I, they took me to this halfway house. And, you know, I mistakenly went to the bathroom and, and, and peed just before I left the airport. So they drop me, they get me to this halfway house and get in there. And right away, they want me to do a urinalysis. They want, oh, you know, man. And, and so, you know, I can't do it. And I always had trouble in prison anyway. Anytime they do it, it's kind of a shy bladder, you know, they stand right next yeah. to you and you're right. Yeah, yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it. So I'm drinking water. I can't do it. I'm drinking water. And they tell you, you know, you got, you know, we get up to 90 minutes. We got, we're going to call the marshals. You're going back to prison. Oh, man. And, uh, you know, so I'm, yeah. I'm sweating, you know, and it actually went, I went two hours and they didn't call the marshals. But I must have drank two, three gallons of water. And I finally was able to do it. And yeah. then I'm up all night that night going to the bathroom and I can't oh, sleep. My gosh. And, and there were two guys snoring above and inside me. And so I hardly slept that night. Yeah. You know, and when I left prison, I'd been taking good care of myself, working out, staying in good shape. I, I remember looking in the mirror thinking, I'm, you know, I'm 49, almost 50, but I'm I'm not looking too bad. Right. You know, but after that night, I got more looked in the mirror, I suddenly looked like I was 70. I went, whoa, you know. <laughs> and uh but then I'm in that halfway house for um, for three months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I realized that place is set up for you to fail. Yeah. There, there's nothing to support you. They have a, a rule book this thick and they won't show it to you. They don't give you a copy of it. Mm. And the crazy things like you can't, you know, once you can finally get out to do a to go to a job, you have to remember like with your job, you know, even to go to the bathroom, you have to call them and say, I'm going to the bathroom now. And, and then you got 10 minutes to go to the bathroom, get back. And if, if you're not, they could violate you. Or, you know, before you come back to that house, you got to call them before you leave. And it just doesn't make sense. So I, 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 several times I forgot to call and I'm just about to walk in halfway. I was like, oh shit, I didn't call. Yeah. And I get back there and call or go which way is going to, you know, you don't, you know, and yeah. I almost got violated. I had no chip on my shoulder. I had a really positive attitude, no resentment. I was committed to doing good. And yet I was on the edge of getting violated constantly. And oh I had to bail me out because a friend who had a car and came pick me up here, picking me up, that bailed me out a couple of times, right? So I barely got through that. And then I went into house arrest, living at this Buddhist residence, kind of a place where about 20, 30 people live and the focus was meditation. And uh, there I had this day reporting thing where you had a phone monitor that could call you anytime, anywhere. And you you scheduled out your whole week with a, with a consort at the beginning of the week. And, and you could never be more than 10 minutes off your schedule and they could call you. So she called me in the middle of the night and I didn't hear it. And when mm. I, when I got up in the morning, I saw there was a message light on my, on my phone. Right. So I checked it up, boom message. And she said, no, you're going back. You're going back to prison. Oh. And, uh, so, uh, fortunately it was a weekend and they were waiting for the director, the director of that, of that company that was a for-profit company managing the halfway house and managing day reporting was out of town. They're waiting. And by the time he got back and they got hold of the U.S. Marshals, the U.S. Well, actually, it wasn't the U.S. Marshals. It was the I was still under control of Federal Bureau of Prisons. So they got they got hold of those people in Denver. And they said, well, you've been back on the clock now for almost 48 hours. We're not going to send you back. But they screwed up. You should be back in prison already. And uh, really? so it was kind of like that, you know, but yeah. I, I finally got off that. But but uh, I got really involved. I was lucky. You know, I had I had nothing but opportunity once I got out of prison. Good. And uh, and I, I got my own consulting company going. I, mm -hmm. I worked really hard and worked really hard. And uh, but I've had a lot of opportunities. And, uh, you know, the first the, the 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 striking thing when I first got out was the world was moving so fast. Yeah. For me, it was scary to cross the street at first. 
Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, eventually I got used to it, but the world was moving so fast. But I'm really grateful that all the everything I did just led to so much opportunity. Like, you know, I got out in 1999 and I've been traveling the world teaching. I mean, up until the pandemic hit, I've been traveling all over North America, South America, uh, a little bit in Asia, uh, a lot in Europe, uh, a little bit in Africa, uh, teaching and training, doing prison work. Uh, You know, today, one of my major activities is I train correctional officers, I train probation and parole officers, and I train police and other first responders in a model we call mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency, helping them work in a way that does less damage to themselves because actually correctional officers that work in a secure facility for 20 years or more have a life expectancy 20 years less than the general population because of all the high stress and trauma exposure and that they don't have good coping skills, right? So today I get up in front of a room. I've been in front of rooms like there's a hundred sheriff's deputies and half of them are armed and wet or they're all armed. Half of them are in uniform. And I get up there to lead a day long training with them. And I start off by telling them who I am. It's just like a pall goes over the room and, you know, I've dug myself in a hole and I got, I got to climb back out, but I do, I get in relationship with them with a lot of humor and deliver the training. But you know, I, I've had all these opportunities and been accepted into the worlds I would never, you know, I'm considered a, uh, you know, a respected criminal justice professional now. And I was, I was a convict, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and all that has come out of living from the place of radical responsibility, living from choice. And it's yes. not a burden. It's the golden door <laughs> opportunity. And it's really also a, a term that I, uh, I've started using of late that, I, that other people, uh, you, it's like personal sovereignty, you know, we usually use the word sovereignty around nations, national sovereignty. You know, right now, the whole issue of the national sovereignty of Ukraine is being seriously violated by this Russian invasion. Right. So we talk right, about. Right. But people also talk about sovereignty at the individual level. Like, you know, how do how do we, you know, take responsibility for our own choices and actions, the consequences that create for us, the impact we're having on others, but also be able to have good boundaries and, and you know, and so forth. And. Uh, you know, it's about that sense of personal sovereignty that allows us to engage in the world in a really powerful way and really add value, right? So it has absolutely nothing to do with self-blame. The, mo- the most important distinction when I teach radical responsibility is the distinction between uh, blame and ownership. Yes. Because we've yes. all been enculturated to believe that when something happens, somebody's got to be blamed. Somebody's got to take the blame. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to be blamed. And we've all been blamed enough in our lives and experienced all that shame. We don't want any more of that. We unconsciously, just instinctually deflect blame out there, right? Because mm-hmm. we're protecting us. We all have these tender, vulnerable hearts. We don't want to be blamed and shamed anymore, right? No. So, but radical responsibility has nothing to do with blaming ourselves. Obviously, it has nothing to do with blaming others. And it's not about blaming victims either. It's about choice. It's about owning our choices and realizing, yeah, stuff happens. People are victimized. We may be victimized and we may need to, you know, vent and, and and be validated for that and, and but at some point the most salient question what am i going to do am i going to let this thing take me down or am i going to find the most creative way i can respond to this to move forward in my life which might include seeking justice but can i do that in an empowered way not not from the victim mindset right yeah. so it's really about choice and when i do look part of it is looking like maybe this circumstance i'm unhappy about i had something to do with right maybe i allowed it or created it or kind of collaborated with her. Maybe I'm consciously setting myself up, but I'm not looking at that to blame myself. I'm looking at that to learn because if I can understand how I got into a situation I don't like, I don't have to do it again. I can learn to do something else. But even if I can't see I had anything to do with it, at some point I can ask myself the question, well, what am I going to do? Here it is. What am I going to do with this? And that's the only place I have any real power because when I focus on blame, even though there may be other people that contributed to a situation I'm in, right? If I focus on that, I'm basically giving my power away, you know, because let's say, you know, Aubrey, let's say you and I have a, a business thing going on and, and it blows up and we're ready to go. To, we're ready to go to fisticuffs. Right. Or we're lawyering up and our friends say, don't do that. You're going to end up in jail. You're going to spend all your money on lawyers. And I know this mediator. Go see this mediator. Right. So we do that reluctantly. And a mediator interviews each one of us. I don't know what you guys are both incredible, compelling storytellers and salespeople. It's a he said, he said. But. I tell you what, we got the videotape, you know, we're going to show that to, to, you know, I got put together this focus group of some smart people don't need either one of you couldn't give a hoot about either one. And we'll see what they say. Right. So comes back, brings us into her office and says, you know, fleet, I have to say, 
they agree that Aubrey really holds more of the more of the responsibility. And I said, well, I'm glad to get found a brilliant group of people. They realize it's all Aubrey's fault. I could have told you that. <laughs> and you go, well, no, they didn't say you had some of the responsibility. And I said, well, I don't know. but as long as they agree, it's mostly or all his fault. Well, they think it's about 70, 30 or maybe 60, 40. I said, well, okay, maybe I had small, some small role to play, but I don't think it went as high as 30, 40%. But, you know, okay, I'll own maybe I... But as long as they agree, it's all his fault. Now, and I, I feel vindicated. Well, does that really make make sense? Because if no. I'm unhappy by definition, right? I'm really unhappy about a situation. Mm-hmm. And if I'm convinced it's that you caused it, whether 30%, 40 70 60 whatever it is, you know, who did I just put in charge of my internal state? Can I control you? No. No. So... You know, I don't get to change my internal state until you change and I can't control you. So I just put you in charge of me and my internal state, my happiness, my well-being. Yeah, it seems very compelling. We all do it all the time, but it makes no sense at all. It's a complete wasteful use of my energy. Now, we may need to complain and get get it, you know, feel the emotion, feel the anger, you know, but then at some point we got to take a big breath, let it go. Okay, okay, what can I do? What's what's in my own enlightened self-interest here to move my life forward? Because yes. that's the only place we have any real power. And that's hard enough. It's hard yep. enough working with our own selves, right? Yeah. And so that's it's really all about choice and living a choice. Gotcha. Choice. Living a choice. Um, my goodness, Dr. Maul, you've taken us on a on a journey, a journey of I heard all four cornerstones in 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 your story that you shared with us. I heard self-awareness, I heard gratitude, I heard humility, I heard service to others. Um, such a journey and an amazing journey of accountability, reflection, ownership, um, and uh, deflecting shame, right? And, and 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 compassion, compassion uh, for those uh, for those inmates that 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 had terminal illnesses that that you volunteered as a as a as, as one of the founding hospice members in the facility to to assist these these gentlemen. Um, a tremendous amount of of, of compassion, uh, as well as resilience, and realizing you know uh, that you can put your concerns aside um, for the benefit of uh, helping others. And of course, you know, you're still managing your life and your emotions and, and your, your affairs, but, but, you know, just, just giving of yourself for the benefit of someone else um, is, uh, is, is, is one of the, the truest acts of thoughtfulness um, and humanity. So I, I got to commend you for that, Dr. Maul, hundred um, percent, sir. Um, how can the listeners learn more about you and connect with you and, uh, and, and just hear, hear this amazing story of, uh, of, of, of your path. Well, then go to my basic website, fleetmall.com. That's a good place to start. You can find out okay. a lot there. And my, my podcast is there and my good. books and, you know, you can find all kinds of stuff. Um, if you want to, uh, learn about the radical responsibility book, you can go to radical responsibility Okay. And you can read what other best-selling authors have had to say about it. And you can download a free chapter of the book right there. Oh, and right there, you can order the book from, you know, through uh, indie books or Amazon or whoever you want to order it from right from that page, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. Most of my online courses and the big online summits that I do today, we just had the Global Resilience Summit last month. We have a big self-care summit coming up in May. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's I, And I deliver the Radical Responsibility course. I have I have an online Radical Responsibility course that all is through uh, my company, HeartMind Institute. Okay. And so that's heartmind.co, heartmind.co. Heartmind.co, um, if, gotcha. if people are interested in the prison work, uh, the work we do with prisoners is through Prison Mindfulness Institute. That's prisonmindfulness.org. Okay. The work we do with public safety professionals, first responders is mindfulpublicsafety.org. Mm-hmm. And then we also train mindfulness teachers in trauma-informed approaches to bring mindfulness to uh, individuals and communities that have been placed at risk and marginalized and unresourced and where there's a lot of trauma. So uh, we do that through another division of our nonprofit that's called Engage Mindfulness Institute, and that's engagemindfulness.org. So there's lots of different places. And probably you can kind of find your way there from fleetmall.com as a starting point. 
Okay, that's very, very good to know. And we'll make sure that we'll have direct links to to those sites uh, um, and initially with uh, fleetmall.com um, for the listeners. Uh, we'll have those direct links in the episode show notes. They can click the link while hearing this uh, this amazing conversation. Um, what a journey. My goodness. I mean, uh, and, and, and I can picture it in my mind's eye, Dr. Maul, uh, every detail that you mentioned uh, from the moment you were sentenced to when you were in the halfway house and all the spots in between. So Dr. Maul, I want to truly, truly thank you for your time and coming on to the show to, uh, to chat uh, for our listeners today. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Aubrey. And it's a pleasure to connect with you and, and, and with your audience. I hope it's a benefit. Oh, an absolute benefit. Thank you so much, Dr. Maul. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening. And look, if you have a loved one, if you have uh, a friend, a colleague, a coworker who seems to be going through dark days of despair, um, a dark period in their time, uh, maybe uh, low self-esteem, uh, maybe, who knows, bankruptcy, addiction, um, a loss of a loved one, just really, really going through despair. Uh, I humbly ask that you please share this show with them because on the road to rediscovery, we want our listeners to know two things. Number one, you're not alone. And number two, there's always hope. The road to rediscovery, it's a movement, a revolution. And guess what? You are now part of it. We're all roadies on this journey of life. And it sure feels good having you on the road with me. Thanks again for listening. We'll chat again soon. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of The Roads Rediscovery. We'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at roadsrediscoverypodcast at gmail.com and leave us any questions or comments you may have. The Roads Rediscovery is an AJ Shark production.